0: today, the show is all about Hollywood. That would be Hollywood, Los Angeles and Hollywood, Florida. Are you intrigued? Well, let's get going. This is Jonathan Tosini, and it's great to have you as usual on our show for August 12th, 2020. Our major sponsor is the American Postal Workers Union, which fights for dignity, respect, and good wages for its 200,000 members and its retirees' not to mention 2,000 private sector workers. I want to put in a pitch here to our thousands of audio listeners who've been listening to the podcast and audio for actually three, three, three and a half years. We'd love if you would sign up for the show as well to YouTube. You could still get the product, the podcast on audio. We're going to keep putting out that content as as an audio podcast, but we would love it if you could subscribe also to the YouTube channel. You may not even want to view the show on YouTube. You may want to stick with the audio podcast, but it certainly helps us build this audience as we've started this show just a few weeks ago, a video show. So go over to YouTube, look for Working Life with Jonathan Tassini and sign up. And we'd love you if you can just do that for us. Again, sign up, even if you continue to absorb this show, process this show as an audio podcast, which, as I said before, we're going to continue to produce it as an audio product as well. And of course, We'd love if you'd become a financial sponsor. You can do that in two ways, as I often remind people. You can go over to our website, workinglife.org, click on the podcast tab and find your way over to Patreon. And there you can become a sponsor, either one-time sponsor or a regular monthly sponsor. And we'd love, obviously, if you'd become a regular monthly sponsor. And you can also do this with ActBlue. We've partnered up with ActBlue, and I know lots of people are pretty familiar with ActBlue through your political contributions. So go over and find us at ActBlue and sign up again as either a one-time sponsor or a regular sponsor. All your contributions help us support this show so we can continue to bring you what I think is information that you're not going to be finding in most other places. So actually using the word quote-unquote Hollywood as the overall branding of the entertainment industry is a little bit quaint and almost outdated. Because the entertainment industry, as we think about it, is neither controlled solely by the traditional movie studios that are based in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, and in fact, some of them are owned by corporations not even based in Hollywood. And more important, the power and money has shifted from the traditional centers in Hollywood to other places, principally Silicon Valley. Think Netflix or Amazon. A lot of that then plays out for us as consumers, but mainly, I always like to think of these changes in the following way. What does this mean for workers? And huge changes in any industry always mean huge changes for workers. And I'm sorry to say, the changes in this day usually are bad for workers, mainly because of the weakness of the labor movement. Unions, as I say, always on this show, and I hope my audience repeats this everywhere you go unions are the only way workers have a voice and some leverage against corporate power especially the jeff bezos philosophy of the world which can be summarized quote let me become as rich as i can and fight unions tooth and nail because i don't give a shit about workers other than to use them as a tool to make me more money that's the best way to sum it up really Now, you may know this, most performers in the entertainment business are not snagging a multi-million dollar deal per picture. That's always been true. The vast majority of performers have always made a living, either a solid middle-class living or sometimes somewhat less than that, from residuals, which are basically payments On top of the original picture fee, and sometimes that's a flat fee or more likely a weekly rate, over many decades, residuals have been tied to various things, like repeat showings of a movie in syndication or sales of DVDs. Now, today, it's all moving to streaming, which for us as consumers means, hey, this is pretty nice. We can watch basically the things we want at the times we choose not when a company wants us to watch like the good old days. I actually do remember the good old days for performers. This is a huge change and this is a fight for sure for performers into the future for the generations to come. Some not even born today. The question is, will they be able to earn a respectable living and how will performers get paid in a streaming world? The entertainment industry also has had to grapple with another shift. That would be the reckoning demanded by the Me Too movement. Now, Harvey Weinstein is singularly a disgusting human being, but think of him as the Donald Trump of the entertainment world, a uniquely abhorrent person who just exposes conduct that is much more widespread and common. It isn't just the infamous casting couch. Think of it because I'm sure you've watched a movie where this would come up. For decades, actors have had to perform nude scenes or very intimate interactions in front of a camera in full view of scores of people on a set, even if the actor felt uncomfortable doing so, because to object to the substance of a scene or to alert a production company to inappropriate behavior during such a scene or the before and after snickerings of crew members who harass a less than fully clothed actor. That's kind of scary because all of a sudden you're the person making a stink. You don't want the production to move forward because you feel uncomfortable. The big silver lining here is that performers have a union, SAG-AFTRA, which still has a big chunk of leverage inside the entertainment industry. Now, you just can't shoot a film or do a television series without a SAG-AFTRA contract. Now to be sure, there are non-union companies that have been eating away at the jurisdiction that SAG-AFTRA covers over many decades actually, but the SAG-AFTRA contract and place in the industry is still quite strong. And in the midst of the pandemic, the union just recently notched a very strong multi-million dollar deal with the main Entertainment Industry Employer Association, on both streaming rights and protections for performers working in intimate scenes, along with other improvements that are in the contract. It's pretty cool, then, to have on the show two giants of SAG-AFTRA, the union's president, Gabriel Carteris, who has a long career in film as an actor, in film, TV, and stage, most prominently in Beverly Hills 90210, and as a producer. And we also have with us Ray Rodriguez, SAG-AFTRA's chief contracts officer. The most extraordinary thing to me, Gabby and Ray, is that here you are in the midst of this pandemic where your industry has essentially shut down with some exceptions. As you well know, your broadcasters have been working. There's been some work in commercials. There's some sprouts that you see here and there of production starting to gear up, and you guys have been working very heavily on on the whole question of reopening safely, and still you're able to negotiate a major contract and all this craziness that's going on in the world and it's really a pathbreaking contract in two aspects which i wanted to bring you on the show to talk about because i think my audience is quite in- will be interested in these two aspects and the first thing i think we want to give people a little background to is the question of residuals and how important and i'll start with gabby as the you know working actor how important going back for decades has that been to a an actor's livelihood especially those who are trying to essentially make a middle class living
1: well first of all it's it's important for all of us who are actors working it's really it's our you have to look at it as our is our pay right it's we not only get paid for our sessions which are really important or the shoot days but the idea that as a show in success as it's mm-hmm. is airing, we also get the benefit of being paid for that continuously. And that's really important because as actors, we work from job to job. So in between those times, when we're waiting for that next job, we need to have some kind of income coming in. And for me, it's been a life changer. There are periods of time when I you know, was working nonstop, and those times that I had the lull of actually being able to go and maybe be on a set to work, But I'm still receiving payments for jobs that I've done that are still being shown. And that allows me to make actually more of this, not as a hobby, but as a career where I can really support my family. And that's for all actors aspire to be able to have at least to make that living. Even the celebrities started Mm -hmm. off in that place where you're just looking job to job. And even when people, it looks like they might be doing very well, you don't know what their challenges are, but we all need to be able to, you know, ultimately again, thrive instead of just barely survive. And that's what residuals do for us.
0: And is there some way of quantifying the amount of residuals that actors get or either perhaps a percentage, Ray or Gabby, about yeah. the percentage that it means to the average actor? And I know that's kind of a broad category. How do we quantify that for my audience?
2: I think that you know it's going to vary somewhat from contract to contract. But broadly speaking, you can think of it as being on the order of half, hmm. about half your pay will ultimately come in the form of residuals. So uh, it is extremely significant. There are contracts where it's even more than half. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's half your pay. And as Gabrielle is saying, it's the half that you get uh, when you're not actively working on set, and it enables you as a professional performer to survive between jobs.
1: And it also allows you to really hone your craft. So when, let's say if I'm not on a set, but I'm getting residuals as a result of the fact that I was working, I can do my auditions. I can go and pay for my transportation to the audition, or if I have wardrobe issues, whatever, all those things that I have to do to prepare. It's not like you just get a job. You have to do certain things, take classes. So that's what residuals are. It's, you know, it's, It's an unconventional way of working. People aren't necessarily familiar with it Mm. because a lot of people go to an office or they have a job that has a a designated amount of time and it's on a regular basis. But we're freelancers in a lot of ways. And that's just, it's not the way it is. So this is a really, it's a very, very important uh, piece of our our income.
0: Yes. And so... Now, what happened in this contract is quite exciting in terms of the way the industry is evolving and what you have done. And I almost analogize this, and you must feel excited about this, being present to actually work on this because what you're doing, and we're going to talk about this. Is you're really looking forward to the future for generations to come, for performers who might not even be born today because the industry is evolving. And I think of the history of the Screen Actors Guild going back to when it was formed and then at the time when the VCR came along. And there were always these chapters where the leadership at that moment had to think 20, 30 years ahead. And so, and my audience knows what's happening as consumers of Netflix, of consumers of streaming services.
1: Right. You go right. down the
0: list, Tell us a little bit about how that industry is evolving, and then, of course, how that affects how you think about your income. Go ahead, Gabby, and then we'll ask Ray.
1: well, first of all, this is it's so interesting to be in the pandemic of covid nineteen during a negotiation. So that in itself, Ray is a champion. I'm telling you as a negotiator, He's amazing. I say it all the time. I always want everybody to know because he really is able to actualize and hear what we want as members. He and David uh, White are a very good team. But that being said, um, you know we're in. It's to do a negotiation. I think I've been in over twenty, and God knows Ray must have been over fifty-five million, if that's the case. But to (laughs) never have I been in a negotiation where we've done it by Zoom. But what was really incredible was that to do a negotiation during COVID actually exemplified or magnified the situation we're in. Everybody was shuttered in home. The first thing they were told was, well, go and watch all the Netflix shows that you missed." You know, this is a great time to binge. And it actually magnified what we, we were talking about as the future, but it is the present. Everybody's watched every Amazon show there is, Netflix show, what's coming out on every streaming platform is being viewed. Um, from this last six months that we've been in the pandemic, and I don't know how much longer we're going to go, but it actually the path of the what we said was the future became an instant presence. And this negotiation dealt with exactly how we're watching uh, and you know consuming product right now, and it does speak to the future because we know that the antiquated way of appointment television, you know that seven o'clock Wednesday night, that's kind of gone. Really, totally, right? People aren't even. It's, you know, all one screen covers all platforms and you wanna watch it in bed with your family, in the living room with your family, in the park with your, whatever it is, this is, it's a new age. And this negotiation during this COVID period, getting the kind of residual increase that we got for streaming, which was a 26 to 45% increase is amazing because it really is, if you talk about the wave, We are not behind the wave. We are on top of the wave. This was, I think, one of the most exciting uh, negotiations and what it means for our members is tremendous.
0: And let's underscore, and then I'll turn to Ray to comment on this. I just happened to notice uh, Disney reporting its revenue results. And even in the pandemic, it didn't do as well as it perhaps wanted to, partly because part of its revenue comes from theme parks, Parks, which are obviously shut down. But it in the third quarter, its third quarter, fiscal quarter, brought in $11.78 billion in revenue. And to your point, Gabby, 100 million subscribers to Disney Plus and its other streaming services, and it announced a new streaming service. And I'm using Disney because everybody knows what Disney is, but it Ray, I think it reflects what's happening in the industry, right?
2: Absolutely. Um, all of the major studios and and their New Silicon Valley competitors who have entered into the industry as well have been prioritizing shifting to this subscription streaming model. Um, not only uh, do the consumers like it, but it creates the opportunity for the studio to control the whole chain of production. They are not doing business now with third-party exhibitors where they're producing content and then licensing it to some other network, some other basic cable network. Uh, some other theater chain, some other uh, company that then does the job of actually delivering the content to the consumer. It's now seamless. It goes all the way from the C-suite at pick your favorite studio, Disney, and uh, all the way to the screen. It's the same company now that gets to control that uh, the entire path. And mm-hmm. so... It enables not only for the studios to reach consumers in a way that consumers find convenient and have responded positively to, but in a way that lets them keep the profit from every uh, link in the distribution chain for themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely attractive uh, to the studios. and, And as you've been seeing with HBO Max, Peacock, you name it, every single studio now is investing heavily in their own subscription streaming platform. And Moving to an environment where that is the uh, preferred destination for their content because that's where they can monetize it the most effectively
0: Hmm. And
1: we start to recognize those shifts. I mean we've been watching them for a while, but the last negotiation Coming from that time to this period there was a whole education for our members that came from David White and Ray The staff talking about you know the Walden garden aspect what he's what Ray is speaking of is that Disney took its uh, material away from outlets like Netflix and said, so we're just going to have it ourselves, our mm-hmm. own walled-in garden. And that's what we're seeing everywhere. That's why that's also very significant to why it's important that we uh, captured the residual stream uh, the way we did this
0: time around. And was the Netflix deal that you made separately for streaming, was that kind of the model and the basis, the, your first big victory on streaming that you then applied here in this big negotiation with the the other studios?
2: more or less. It's a little little bit different uh, in that Netflix, the agreement that we had with Netflix didn't actually address the residual formula. Mm. Um, That was really much more about Netflix shifting into the role of producing for itself, which Mm. is the direction that company has been taking. Uh, Gabrielle just referenced the fact that Disney and the other studios, because they're recognizing that they created a monster that they now have to compete with, Uh, have been pulling their content away from Netflix and putting it onto their own platforms. The flip side of that is Netflix now has to fill their platform with content that they produce for themselves. Hmm. And as they shifted into that role of of self-producing more and more, they needed to have a direct relationship with the union. I mean, they had been operating basically as an exhibition platform and and having third-party producers make their content. Um, but they are now they are now filling in the other half of what studios have been doing. Studios have been producing the content, and now they're developing the platforms to show it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Netflix had been the platform showing content from everyone, and now they're having to fill in the other side of that role and actually increasingly produce for themselves. So it was a, it was it was a, a different focus, but it, it definitely is responsive to the same. Uh, overall trajectory of where the industry is going, where, as as Gabrielle said, it's walled gardens. Netflix is going to produce for Netflix. Disney is going to produce for Disney. Uh, And that was really the significance of the Netflix deal.
0: And although we're in a pandemic and we shouldn't make humorous asides or it's not a funny time, I do have to say that I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, friends of mine, who say this pandemic has to be over already because we're running out of things to watch. You know, I've already watched everything I want to watch on Netflix. And, and you know, that's it's why like we've people... been
1: working on a safer way to go back to sets, right? We recognize <laughs> that the audience needs it. And so we are doing everything we can to make sure everybody goes back to work. So,
0: And I yeah. know we all know it's a serious uh, time, but it is. Uh, it, there is, uh, you know, humor in our lives <laughs> that we have to remember that. And people are, as I said, tearing out their hair, whatever hair I have left, uh, about running out of content. Now, yeah. the contract was passed by overwhelming margin by 75%, which is a huge uh, support for the negotiators, for the leadership, because people are excited about it. And so does the average performer, when they are now moving forward into a streaming situation, if we can explain it in layperson's term, how much do they make off of this? You know, it, it, is, does it come out of... How many times it's streamed? Is it a big pot of money that's divided? Explain it in the easiest way possible for a late audience.
1: I'll let Ray do that one.
2: (laughs) Sure. Yeah, no, it's it's basically um, how long it's available on the platform. Uh, So you do your work. uh, 90 days later, you get your first residual becomes due. It's due at the end of that quarter. Uh, And then you get a residual payment every year. Uh, And the formula looks at how much you made wow. uh, for your work on that show, and it looks at the size of the platform and how long it's been exhibited. So it's a declining scale where each year of availability, uh, the payment goes down a bit because you figure the audience, you know, most of the audience is watching right after it comes out. And then as the years go by, you know, it's not going to attract the same size of audience generally. So that's what it is. It's an annual payment. It's based on the fact that your program is available on the platform over the course of that year and the formula looks at what you made uh, and how long that program has been available and then the size of the platform you're on. If you're on a bigger platform, obviously the payment is higher.
1: And that's the, the change that you're seeing that that we're seeing within the industry. That's a very important uh formula that Ray is talking about, because traditionally it was how many eyes, right? Nielsen's based on how many eyes, how many households are watching. This is a matter of time. So that allows for as, as the screens change and the way, you know, that people, all the different ways that people might view, we're really coming to a place. It doesn't matter ultimately how you view it. It's the fact that you're, it still lives. And Mm -hmm. as long as it lives, you get paid, which is
0: actually, that's really
1: forward thinking compared to historically how we used to do things.
0: Hmm. Really interesting. Okay. So I want to transition now to the second topic that I think my audience is quite interested in. The pandemic in some way has wiped away our memory of everything that was going on before because we're in the grips of this crisis, this national pandemic. But Within the last couple of years, there's been a huge uprising by women around the Me Too movement, around sexual harassment, uh, if I can use the term, the Harvey Weinsteining of of the country. And Harvey Weinstein being the most uh, disgusting example, uh, an egregious example of a human being who abused women repeatedly. But, and Gabby, you know this because you've been in the industry for a long time. This has been really rife for years and decades and not really spoken about. And what you all did is you tried to address this and you've addressed this before, but actually in the negotiation, the contract, you've actually put in place hard and fast rules about protecting mostly women, but I assume this applies well, to somebody, somewhat- anybody,
1: anybody who's in a hyper-exposed work where they have to do yep. nudity or sexual, sexually explicit or just, you know, hyper work, they are protected. So explain,
0: uh, explain kind of the evolution of this and what the importance of this is.
1: Well, first of all, when you say, you know, this has been going on in within our industry, this is endemic in society mm-hmm. and on a global level. So, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, what sexual assault and that vulnerability that people have with people who are in power taking advantage. And so the Harvey Weinstein moment for all of us was like, oh my God, first of all, it magnified a lot of what people are feeling or experiencing, except it was just so extreme that it threw people out into the universe to start talking about it. One person said it, and then another person said, oh my God, I'm not alone. That happened to me too. You're not alone. You're not alone. And it created this this mushroom. We've gone through periods of time where we've had the mushroom. We realized after the Harvey Weinstein moment, we didn't want it to be just a moment, but a a movement. So this has been a real movement these last couple of years. And this this contract, I actually think speaks to the movement itself. The language that we got in this contract, a lot of this was derived from um, members from around the country, talking about, these are the things that we experience when we go on set, when we, how do we, how do we help, you need to help us feel empowered, and not so vulnerable, that, you know, when we go to, you know, we're, uh, we don't want to lose the job, We're we're stuck in a situation when we come on set, and suddenly they throw upon us, you know what, just take your clothes off here, or you know what, just so what if he touches you there, it's not a big deal, and this feeling of diminished sense of self that, you know, you don't want to lose the job, you want to be a team player, this isn't really what you signed up for, but now you don't feel like you have a voice. So this contract, what's gone on, I think it really expresses, it's it's about empowerment. So the idea that we put 48 hours notice uh, prior to going to a set to know exactly what it is you're going to do to be able to have The script the sides uh, the scenes that you're working on so you can see what is this explicit work? I'm going to do you sign something to say yes, this is acceptable. We all know what I'm going to be doing I know what I'm going to be doing and then when you go to set you can't just have it changed again You're empowering the uh, the performer to say wait a minute. This is what I agreed on. I did not agree on this I'm not comfortable on this. We want them to feel empowered instead of feeling so vulnerable that they've lost their voice. So those that was one of the things that we dealt with. We talked about dignity the onset, the ability for, you know, performers whether they're you know all the way from background to the you know series regular the idea that when you're standing on set and you're naked or you're hyper exposed that you should be able to have a cover-up in between you know shots they're people literally Jonathan if I tell you they tell us stories where they were left there naked saying you know what we'll get to you we'll get to you it's okay you don't need a cover-up it's going to take up time unacceptable Like, this is like, nobody would, nobody wants to be left out there like that. So this language that we put in the contract, again, empowers the performer to feel dignity when they're doing their work. And there's several different things that we've got into this contract language that I think is really, really important stepping stones for Mm -hmm. um, giving people the ability to have a voice. And again, to remember, you know, that you have a right, you have a
0: right. Right. And I assume it then is not just about and this is the this is obviously important. It's not just about the individual performer being able to say stop and having the ability to do that, but also it probably creates then a different environment on the set. So yes. for example, a, pers- a performer will get covered, but also it, it sends the message to all the crew and s- certainly men, but all the crew that you can't treat someone with disrespect or harass them.
1: Right. You can't just go and pull your phone out and take a picture yep. and send it around to your buddies. Unacceptable. You know, you can't, don't demean the individual because you think this is a fun, cute moment. This is serious, it takes a lot. We wanna make sure that everybody has understands there's boundaries, we should have a closed set. We want people to work with comfort. And I do think it gives relief to the crews. There are crew members who've said to us, thank you because it's so uncomfortable. I was on a set and I didn't know what to say. Mm. We're We're actually helping to empower everybody with this language.
0: And Ray, I'm curious at the negotiating table, what was the dynamic around this issue was it simply the ceos or whoever you were negotiating with were they simply dealing with this because they saw the potential legal liabilities if in this environment of being sued or did they actually get it did they actually understand what was going on in society what was the dynamic there
2: yeah i mean it's a it was an interesting dynamic because i you know I am convinced that uh, the negotiators that we were dealing with actually at an individual level, they did get it. Um, You know, the chief negotiator for the AMPTP and her sort of second in command there are both women. Uh, And I, I think they did understand it, Uh, but they were working on behalf of companies that are, you know, these are increasingly bottom line oriented companies uh, that are part of massive conglomerates, that everything gets put through an Excel spreadsheet. And, um, you know, they're very loath to want to bring a deal back to their superiors that are going to impose a bunch of new obligations that are going to slow down their production. And so while at the same time, you're getting this sense from the negotiators that they, have, that they are personally sympathetic, it is, it is a fight. Uh, for every single inch of protections that you're able to add to the contract, um, it's it's a slog. I mean, it, this is not a circumstance where you're being met with, yeah, that sounds reasonable, and, and suddenly you get to it's it, you know this this took the entire negotiation. Um, this issue didn't get resolved until the very end. In fact, the last piece of the deal to move uh, so that we could close was one of the aspects. That was in play in this area of nudity and sex acts and that was extending the requirement of cover-ups to background actors because we were we were being told no on that they'd finally gotten to the point where they said okay if there's a pause in filming we'll bring a we'll bring a bathrobe or another cover-up to the principal performer but they wouldn't make the same commitment for someone who is engaged under a background contract like that means you have any less dignity as a human being because you're being engaged as a background actor. It's just a form of contractual engagement. Um, and so, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a strange dynamic in that regard because I did feel like I was dealing with people who understood it and who were naturally sympathetic to it, but who were being uh, accountable to companies uh, that, um, you know, that, that have a very dollars and cents and bottom line driven view on near every issue, including this one. So it was, it was a real fight um, to get these protections and, you know, and, and, and as much as we have accomplished in this contract, and look, we took a a provision that was half a page in the collective bargaining agreement dealing with nudity and and sex acts and turned it into several pages uh, with more than a dozen new protections for performers. I mean, it was a radical uh, rewrite and overhaul and improvement uh, of this section. Um, But, you know, even at that, it doesn't end with the contract. The advocacy has to continue into the enforcement, into the culture setting on set, into so many other, you know, legislative activity. Education. Education. You have to attack this from 360 degrees. Mm. And I I think we we have to be realistic and know that we have to set our expectations that this is going to be resistant. As righteous as I think, you know, I think this is one of these issues where. Um, nobody is going to argue with the righteousness of what we're trying to do. And yet you have to understand, and people have to understand this is an inch by inch fight, uh, in negotiations
0: and out of negotiations too. Okay. So, um, in closing, let me just go back to where I started. It's really incredible what you both have done and not just you two, I know you've worked with huge teams of people, uh, leadership staff that in the midst of this pandemic, You've really set some incredible, really high bars and new standards, both on the level of what people are going to earn in terms of streamings and to give people the dignity and respect when they go to work.
1: You make it sound, look, it's been a long, long, long uh, hard drive. So when you're saying that, Jonathan, it's so nice to hear it. But I have to say, um, for my part, the members have been tremendously important in this process. We have the, you know, the, Blue Ribbon Commission on Safety, um, but we also have members from around the country who've been talking, working with, uh, working with individuals outside of art, you know, of being actors, but with directors and producers, really talking about this. It has been, and just throughout the industry, working with so many people has been so, so interesting and so fulfilling, and it really, It speaks about people really wanting to see cultural change. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just, it takes all of that. But with all of that and all the members who've been involved, I have to say again, our staff who really not only heard it, you know, heard it, but digested it and is able to actually on our behalf, be able to speak on this has been really important because it really is the synergy of the members and the staff when we go through the negotiating process, Mm. that success happens, I think. And I think there's been a really, it was a good, it was a good group this time around.
0: Well, good on both of you. Uh, As you both pointed out, there's now the job of making sure this is implemented, that you can actually on the shop floor, if I can use that old industrial term, you make it happen. And we'll have to have you back on the show to talk about how it's going, not to mention how you're doing on reopening the industry. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: The other Hollywood action is happening out in Florida. That would be Hollywood, Florida, which is one city in Florida's 23rd congressional district, a strongly democratic district currently represented by the odious Debbie Wasserman Schultz. In a world of dishonest, morally corrupt, vain and narcissistic politicians, Wasserman Schultz stands out. She's Trump-like in that sense. Now, I have a little history with her when she ran the Democratic National Committee as her own personal fiefdom, trying to advance not the party, but her own personal career. And to that end, she saw her career trajectory taking the next step if Hillary Clinton became president. So Debbie Wasserman Schultz did everything possible to undermine Bernie Sanders. This isn't a conspiracy theory. WikiLeaks laid out in detail all the dirty dealings in the back rooms when it released that trove of emails back then. Now, at the time I was in 2016, a national surrogate for Bernie Sanders and was doing a ton of TV advocacy for him, especially on CNN. And I found out, and I wasn't looking for this, this was something that someone else saw and sent me a little heads up about. I found out that like hundreds of others who were not loyal to the coronation plan, I was being tracked by the DNC, as you can see from this specific email, and I'll describe it for my audio audience. It's an internal DNC email with the subject heading, Mr. President, we need a new DNC chair, which was just the title of an op-ed piece I wrote urging Barack Obama, who was president at the time, of course, to sack Wasserman Schultz. The contents of the email are brief, quote, not enough to have him on TV every hour, CNN now printing op-eds from Ticini, end quote. The point really here is that Wasserman Schultz created a a culture inside the DNC that was biased and anti-democratic, and she needed to be sacked from the DNC, which eventually happened just before the convention. And in my opinion, she still needs to go and be sacked from public life. And that's where Jen Perlman comes in. Jen is challenging Wasserman Schultz in the Democratic primary, which is next week, or at least that's the specific day of the deadline for in-person polling booth elections because thousands of Floridians do early voting. As you may know, you've seen those lines and they are already lining up each day to cast a ballot. Jen's website is Jen2020.com, and this is fun. I caught up with her as she was out talking to voters, and Jen, when we spoke to set this up, you asked me if it was okay if you could actually appear, I guess, in what we would say campaign garb, campaign clothes, and you're really at the end of the campaign trail, so of course, um, I was very happy to have you on as is, and I want to describe- for my audio listeners, that Jen is in complete campaign regalia with her sunglasses now perched on okay. her head. She's got her actual t-shirt, which talks, obviously talks about her campaign and she's out the there in the polling volunteer. place. Yeah. So de- with your volunteer. So describe, actually, give us a little sense of where you are and what's happening.
3: So I am at the Weston Regional Library, which is one of
0: our early polling locations in my district.
3: And um, this is actually a really good location because every car has to drive by one main place. A lot of the locations are much harder to really kind of capture. And you can see if I turn around, see all these people back there. Yep. All those people are all standing and and campaigning for candidates and holding up signs. And we are actually today, my campaign manager and I, we drive around and we're delivering um, lunch to our people that are working the polls. Mm -hmm.
0: So when you go up to talk to people or interact with people who are waiting in line for early voting, I assume this is probably asking the obvious question that the whole pandemic coronavirus has structured the way you campaign in a different way.
3: Well, we, we actually were shut down for about a month and a half when this all first hit, and we lost about six weeks of canvassing time, which was not ideal. Um, but, you know, we have been still canvassing. Now we do it with socially distant canvassing. A lot of where we just have all of our volunteers are walking around with masks, and a lot of times we just leave door hangers on doors. Uh, we still do knocking. It just depends. And really, it's just been a matter of that the polls are really slow. And I think a lot of that is because we've been encouraging everybody for months to do vote by mail and request vote by mail. And, you know, so we've been pushing that so hard for months that we shouldn't be surprised that we're now having low in-person turnout.
0: Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of talk about the challenges of voting in this moment voting by mail or voting in person. Are you seeing that at all in your district? Are you concerned about the ability to turn out voters?
3: There is definitely concern about vote by mail. And I'll tell you what I have noticed that's interesting that I never saw before is the amount of people that are coming to polling locations to drop off their vote by mail ballots Mm. so that a lot of people requested vote by mail. I'd say about half the people coming into every polling place has already filled out their ballot and they're already walking in with it sealed to just deposit it here.
0: So that they're jumping across the problem of it getting, say, from their home to the polling place.
3: Correct. Well, that and they're not relying on the post office. Yeah, they're we- not relying on the mail. They're they're putting it in every one of our polling places. And I think this is very smart anyway, but because of COVID, there's all these drop boxes. So a lot of people are coming up and just dropping it instead of mailing it.
0: Mm. So you're a great progressive candidate on all the issues, but I have to say you had me at three words Debbie Wasserman Schultz. (laughs) And I have a little history in this. You may know that when I was a surrogate for Bernie Sanders in 2016, when Wasserman Schultz was also the chair of the Democratic Party, she and her underlings were tracking me and many others in emails Mm. and being very upset at the fact that somehow we were out there in the media talking about Bernie, because of course, she was among that group of folks who were essentially trying to get across the Line the anointed candidate from the standpoint of the establishment, but I want to actually ask the question: How much of your campaign is about her versus what you're trying to articulate? Obviously, that's a tough balance sometimes to to do because you are running against an incumbent.
3: It's. I'd like to think that we've made so much inroads and and. Progress building coalitions to serve the community. Our campaign has always been about public service and not a career. That's the whole point of this. Mm. I do think that she being the opponent makes it easier for us as far as fundraising, because Mm. she is like kind of the nemesis of a lot of the Bernie supporters around the country. And so, you know, it's sort of like she's the bonus. That's the bonus. But what we're really trying to do is so much bigger than just her. She's, you know, she's just one that people knows because of 2016, but there are so many corporate entrenched incumbents. And so we have garnered a lot of support that's really support for us Mm. and not just a vote against her. And I think that is something that's very different than what we saw in 2016 when she was challenged.
0: Yes. And I want to say that it is true that Bernie folks have a particular axe to grind with her because of the way in which she manipulated the party and essentially attempted to throw the nomination to Hillary Clinton. But I have to say, and I'll tell you this honestly, when I spoke to even insiders in the party at that time, they were no big fans of hers. Lots of them did not like her because she stands head and shoulders above many uh, politicians as being completely ego an egomaniac driven yep. by her own agenda. And that's saying a lot among the political class, but there is a sense that she is especially immoral and not fit to serve and is not representing the interest of the people. But to your point, you are trying to actually articulate why you should be elected and why actually she only got 56% of the vote, I believe in the last time she was challenged. So you actually have a huge base of people who want an alternative.
3: Yeah. Yeah. We do. And you know, it, you can really see it. It's really generational. It's, you, it's very generational. And when I see when I go to um, anything where it's her people are working there, or whatever, it's all hired people that she just has working polls. Whereas I have like, I don't even know how many of these young kids, they're young, high school and college kids that are out running around. And when they when the lights turn red, they're dancing in the streets with my signs. And there's this enthusiasm that you can't get that by paying people. Right. So she's got people sitting in a chair at every location on their phone holding a sign for her. That's what she's got. I've got like this momentum and you can't buy that. You can't. And so I I think ultimately this is eventually going to turn now. Hopefully it turns for us this year, but it is turning because Mm. the generational divide, there's more and more young people and more and more old people dying off. So that's just, that's the reality. But we, I don't even like to really talk about her. Mm. We represent doing what people want. 72% of the American people want Medicare for all. She's not going to support Medicare for all because she takes big pharma money right. And, and private insurance money. So this isn't about her. It's just about, we want to get these things done and it's not going to happen with her because she's beholden to other interests. Mm-hmm. So it's just, we have to kind of go around this. That's what we're trying to do.
0: I read all your positions on your website. And one of the things that came out and I think it's be kind of a fascinating one to talk about is you're addressing the green new deal, your supporter of the green new deal, but the way you put it in context, you talked about the way in which big sugar is one of the largest polluters in the state and she gets mm-hmm. money from big sugar explain what specifically big sugar does to be a polluter cuz i think you okay. know most of us really don't know
3: Right. Well, Big Sugar is one of several industrial agricultural pollute polluters. There are, there are others, but Big Sugar is particularly large here in Florida. And essentially, they are set up their plant on the southern edge of Lake Okeechobee. And if you look on a map of Florida, you see this sort of lake in the middle, and that's Lake Okeechobee. And if you you can imagine along the southern coast of that, you've got these industrial plants. And that area is where the water used to drain through, get cleansed and go through into the Everglades. And then it became progressively more fresh as it got filtered out. There was this natural ecosystem process. Hmm. And because of these industrial agricultural plants, they divert the water to the St. John's River on one side and the catalucci I forget the name of the river on the other side. And essentially, it's not draining and cleaning how it's supposed to. So, we're getting incredible amounts of toxic blue green algae and exacerbation of our red tide in the Gulf. These are things that are as a result of the nitrates blooming from all of this runoff from the agriculture and from the water not being able to properly clean itself. Well, Debbie gives subsidies to big sugar. We're actually, instead of penalizing them with, let's say, fines for polluting, we actually subsidize big sugar. Mm -hmm. And she takes an exorbitant amount of money from big sugar. So, you know, it's, you could just connect the dots. If you're taking money from them and you're giving them subsidies and they're polluting and you're not standing up for us, you're representing them. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, 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 it's really obvious at this point that that's what's going on.
0: So correct me if I'm wrong about the geography. I actually know where Lake Okeechobee is because I used to drive from the West Coast to the East Coast to visit family and that lake is stuck right in the middle and you kind of have to either go south or go north around it. But am I right that you're talking about a journey for water of hundreds of miles right down to the Everglades? So what's happening, Uh what, what Big Sugar is doing is affecting the ecosystems hundreds of miles away. Am I right about that? Yes.
3: Yes, that is exactly right. And people don't realize that. And not only it even goes further north than that in terms of some of the problems we have with other types of construction issues. But yes, because if you were to look at a map of the state of Florida, like there's these antique maps that I've seen. It's really cool back from when natives would draw like cartography in these charts. Florida, where I'm standing. Wasn't land. It was all marsh, all swamp, and it all was part of the Everglades. We brought it in, built it up, and built canals diverting the water. So now we have this complete canal driven man made system that is not natural. It doesn't benefit the ecosystem and it's having issues cleaning itself mm-hmm. and it's affecting everything down here.
0: Wow, that's, a, that's an amazing observation about the way in which the whole ecosystem is affected just by this one industry there. Um, at the top of your issues, a few of the policies that you support, you have something relating to policing and specifically yeah. ending federal programs that provide military equipment to local police officers. I'm wondering if you jumped that to the top of the list since you started campaigning just because of the transformation of the conversation in the country.
3: Yeah. Well, let me be clear that criminal justice reform has always been in one of it was one of my top three issues. Always. I'm a criminal justice lawyer. That has always been an issue that's very important to me. And policing is really just the first step in a very, very messed up process that is completely discriminatory from start to finish. So I have generally focused more on the post arrest um, type of area of criminal justice reform and being a lawyer. That's more of what I have focused on. But I have been very aware that the process starts from elementary school, from how we label children, whether or not we put them in diversion programs, whether or not we start putting five and six year old kids in handcuffs and and bringing them out of elementary schools. So this is an issue and it's definitely racially disproportionate. Mm -hmm. So I've been very aware of this. But yeah, I mean, more people are now wanting to talk about it, but I am very like nobody would look at me and my platform and think we're just talking about this now because it's current. Um. We we are just talking more about one end of it versus mm-hmm. more of the judicial side of it.
0: Right. That's a great observation about your background. You've got a history of of really working on behalf of folks in the criminal justice system as a as a defense lawyer. And I guess my question was, have you seen a shift as I think you just kind of hinted to that a shift in the way people want to address that, especially people who might not have been comfortable talking directly about police um, violence and also, frankly, racism.
3: I think that it's every time there's an incident, okay, whether whether it started with like Rodney King back in the day, as soon as we started having like cameras and phones and stuff, every time there's an incident, I feel like infinitely more and more people get woke. Right. Like one more person looks at that and is like, "Eh, that's just not right. So I have seen a nice influx of people into that zone of awareness of police brutality and that's been really great. I'll take it any way we can get it. Um, but no it's a it's a big problem and it's a problem here it's a problem everywhere. We have a problem with our own Sunrise Police Department. They still haven't released the autopsy report of a, a case that they won't even tell us what happened over a year and a half ago. Hmm. And there was 16-year-old that they chased into a lake and he drowned. So there and we can't get to the bottom of that. So we have issues across the board. But I've known for years that how black people and white people are treated by the police is completely different, completely different.
0: And I know you're really focusing and talking to Democratic primary voters right now, but should you win the primary, you would be obviously in a general election, heavily Democratic district. So you'd probably be a shoo-in to be in Congress. I'm wondering if you're hearing that same conversation on race and on police from not Democrats, but Republicans and independents. I've noted, and I don't want to overstate the point, that there are a whole bunch of folks, I don't know how to quantify that, across the nation, white people – Republicans who are saying, you know, I always thought of myself not as a racist, but this really opened my eyes yeah. as to really what's happening in the country and it makes them even question their support of Republicans and Trump and anybody who's supporting place. I'm just trying to get a sense of the that kind of conversation that if you're hearing I that.
3: I find that and I think a lot of it also is just my approach and how I talk to people for example. Mm-hmm. Most of the people hanging out at this particular polling place our, this is a very Republican area. So a lot of the people coming in here are voting a Republican ticket. I get along with all people. Like, I don't have a problem. But I The first thing you do is you find the common ground. And as soon as people realize, oh, we're not treating everybody the same, it's not so hard to sort of bring up this conversation as to what we can do to fix those things. And I really kind of just leave party out of it. I don't really, I mean, yes, our phone banking and, and canvassing operations, sure, we're only targeting Democrats right now to get out the vote. But I've been talking with Republicans and non-party affiliates for more than a year now. A lot of them have switched over to be able to vote for me um, because we do have closed primaries, unfortunately. But I I have no I talk to everybody. I I helped create a, create this bipartisan citizens election audit by merging my friends at the Progressive Caucus with my new friends at the Southwest Broward Republican Organization. And so they all want fair elections. I, I find that I'm very easy. It's easy for me to find common ground.
0: Now, I think this is the first time you've run for electoral office. Am I right about that? Yes. Now, obviously, it's a completely different animal given the pandemic. But putting the pandemic aside, what's that been like as a candidate? You've been obviously active in politics for a very long time. What's that been like? How has it changed your life? Uh, would you do it again?
3: Um, you know, everybody <laughs> wants to know if I'll do it again. I. I <sighs> It's hard to say. I feel like if I don't, I'm letting a whole bunch of people down that really think that we have a good chance this time. But if we don't, like, I mean, it definitely takes a while to build up name recognition and to build coalitions. And it's really just a fight of time. So the question is, were we able to do it in this amount of time or do we still need to keep building until we can get enough people to cross over? It's been it's been really you know what? It's been a privilege. It's been a privilege. I Most people will never have the opportunity to do this because of the way our system is. One re, That's one of many reasons I support publicly financed elections um, is, you know, everybody should have the opportunity to serve their community. And that's what this is. It's a term of service. It's not a career. And we need to demonstrate that by living that. So we've been running a service-based campaign the entire time I've been running. Our campaign volunteers have been doing food distributions, veterans' nursing home, park cleanups, ever since I started this. We call ourselves Gen Corps. And I always said that win or lose, we would keep that going. So at a minimum, I'll be having my community service organization still going around and doing all sorts of stuff. I, you know, as far as dealing with the politics and the establishment, it's pretty brutal. You know, these these people are very happy with the way things are. They don't want change. Most of them are old and white and um, very comfortable. And they like the way things are. They don't care who Debbie takes money from. They don't care that she talks about Trump, but then gives him more money. They, this doesn't bother them. They're willing to look past that just because they like her. So, you know, that's what I'm dealing with in terms of the politics, the party politics in our area. Bye, Mary. Um, that's a uh, Weston city commissioner, Weston city commissioner right there. Um, so, you know, it's just... At this point, I accepted that this would be the way it was. I remember how it was for Tim when he ran in 16. I wasn't expecting them to welcome me with open arms by any stretch. So we've been basically being ghosted, Mm -hmm. which is actually the best we could hope for because they haven't really been working against me as much as they probably would have if they didn't already know me.
0: And I see you're wiping your brow there, so I assume it's kind Oh my it's God, kinda, it's, so it's, it's, it's so hot, it's so
3: hot.
0: Hey, it's Florida, it's August, what'd you expect? I, Which
3: is why we have elections here in August in Florida, it's voter suppression, less people come out, keep low turnout.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, not just because it's hot, but August in typical years is often a time when people are on vacation, they go away, but yeah. ma- mail balloting has really helped that because you can actually cast your ballot before you decide to go on vacation. I asked you about campaigning, And I'm going to wrap up our conversation here and let you get uh, out to actually campaigning a couple of minutes. I asked you also as a personal matter, how has it changed your life? Because you're a hard worker. You've been active in politics. You're uh, uh, a lawyer. How has it changed your life? And what have you noticed that's different in politics and running for office that you maybe didn't care for or you found actually fun?
3: Uh, You know, it's changed my life in that I kind of don't have a life anymore. So there's that this is not just a full-time job. This is a life. Like this has been my life for now over a year and a half. So I don't think I'll be able to tell you how my actual life has changed until I get back into my regular life. Like it's hard to say right now. Um, it's been interesting. I'll tell you what you learn who your friends are really quickly. You learn who your friends are. You learn who you can't trust. You, you really see things, um, From a very different perspective but i actually for the most part i've really had a good time with this Mm. i really have i mean look there's aggravating things about any business venture in general the only thing that's really extra hard about campaigning is that imagine having a short-term business venture so there's no time for a learning curve right like if you mess up you can't say oh we'll do it better next time there is no next time like this was your opportunity to hit that target date or whatever it was right so that's what makes them hard and why people don't often win the first time is it's such a learning curve. And so with a business, if you do something that you you know isn't great and you then you change it, it'll help you in the long term. By the time you do that in a campaign, your campaign's over. So um I think it's been I think it's been very enlightening to do this. But I haven't, you know what I weren't I wasn't too surprised. I pretty much got treated exactly how I thought I would get treated by the stick of fans in our district. So um it was not shocking to me.
0: But on the other hand, I assume as an insurgent, someone who is running for the right reason, meaning a vision, policies, not just to get a position to, for yourself, I assume you've drawn people to your campaign and that's been inspiring the kinds of new friends you've made because they're probably getting into it for the right reason.
3: Yeah, a whole bunch, a whole bunch of people. I've made some friendships that are amazing because absolutely from, it's more coalition building and just the people I've met because we have been doing so much service that I've met so many people with organizations and I've been able to connect so many different things. I almost feel like I'm the center of a web in this campaign and I've been able to like connect so many different things whether it's um, helping small businesses or connect this service with this person. Like it's just been really um It's been great. And I've made an amazing amount of connections. You know, I mean, I can call Andrew Yang, which is pretty cool. Hmm.
0: That must be an interesting conversation.
3: He's great. He is. So you know what, though? I've been hanging around. My husband is really kind of nerdy and stuff. I've been hanging around with like smart boys like that my whole life. So it was kind of to me, it didn't feel that out of the ordinary talking to him. He's just very bright and very reasonable. And he's just a good guy. He just wants to have he has a vision and wants to make a change, you know. And I, yeah, respect I, have,
0: it. I have to say, I watched him in the presidential debates and I tweeted at one point, I may not agree with some of his thing, positions, for example, the universal basic income. I'm skeptical a little bit about that, but you can actually see a mind working there and someone trying to think about things as opposed to a lot of the vapid responses that people give.
3: Exactly. He brought something new to the table. And, and that is something I really very much appreciate because most of them are all just exactly the same, just different identity, politic, different forms of each other. And he actually brought something new to the table. And like you said, I don't agree with him on every issue by any stretch, but he is a person of science and reason. And when people of science and reason come together, we can come to amazing solutions, mm. you know, and that's really what it comes down to is just not being beholden to special interests and really trying to come up with practical solutions, um, And yeah, and also he's not a party insider. And so that's way refreshing.
0: So last question to you. Okay, it's a few days until the vote is final, meaning the actual election day, but we know a lot of people are voting. Obviously you're talking to voters. That's your main mission, right? What else are you doing the next few days?
3: Basically we're on... We're, my campaign manager are just driving around to all the early voting places. We mingle with people. We make sure that our signs are up. I'm bringing food to my volunteers. I'm delivering purple ponchos to them. Uh, we're like the purple group. And we have been every evening canvassing on top of this. So like we'd be out in the field all day and then go canvassing. But tonight I actually think I'm not going to canvass because I have an eight o'clock uh, panel that I have to participate in. So I think I'm going to escape canvassing tonight. We'll see. He'll probably make me canvass somewhere. I don't know.
0: Campaign managers, they're just slave drivers. They're brutal, right? He
3: is. He's harsh. He's actually my partner. We started this together. We have a very unusual situation. I didn't decide to run and then hire a campaign manager. He and I were friends. He had the idea that I should do this, and we've been doing it together.
0: So thank you very much for being on the show. We'll have you back when you're the nominee uh, of the Democratic Party.
3: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: That'll do it for this week's show. Thanks to my guests gabriel carteris and ray rodriguez from sag aftra and jen perelman who's running in the 23rd congressional district in florida against debbie washerman schultz our editor as usual is david hebden our major sponsor is the american postal workers union as i said in the beginning i want to urge all our audio listeners to go over to the youtube channel Working Life with Jonathan Ticini. And please do subscribe to that channel over on YouTube. You can still listen to the show on audio as thousands of people do every single week. You can still do that. We're still going to produce it that way. But we'd like, if possible, if you'd help us build the audience at the YouTube channel so we can spread the the video product to as many people as possible, Obviously, lots of people like things in video. The more people subscribe, the more people will see us. So just take a minute or two and go over to YouTube and subscribe there. Again, you can still get the product. You can still get the show as an audio cast. And we'll continue to post that as usual in the way that you consume it every single week, the way you've been getting it for the last several years. Also, obviously, just a reminder, you can become a sponsor of the show. You can do that by going over to workinglife.org, clicking on the podcast tab, and then finding your way over to Patreon, where you can become either a one-time sponsor or a regular sponsor. And of course, you can also do that, as I mentioned, with ActBlue. We partnered up with ActBlue. Just go over to ActBlue, find our little link over there and become a sponsor at whatever level you can afford. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. Look forward to having you back next week.